Uh, good morning, everyone. Y'all are gathered in person. Morning. It's good to see everyone. Ephesians chapter one. Why don't you turn there? We're going to be in two verses today. We've got a big text ahead of us. This past year was marked by the strange experience of being but not fully being. We were still ourselves, but we weren't fully ourselves. Our friendships weren't the full expression of those relationships. For those of us who have worked from home, we know that this past year was one of working, but not really working. We had uh, Arlo, our son born, our little COVID baby, that my grandparents, uh, my parents, his grandparents, are absolutely his, his Nona and Papa, and yet... They're not fully his known and papa. Why? Because they have not physically held him yet. They're grandparents, but not fully grandparents. You see, this year has been a year of being, but not fully being. And as a natural extension, our church community, collective church, we have been the church while not fully being the church. Our live stream Sunday services, our Zoom-hosted neighborhood dinners and discipleship groups, and in the absence of the hundreds of little conversations and interactions that happen within this community on a weekly basis, though we have but haven't fully been ourselves, we are beginning to return to the fullness of what it means to be collective again. But what does that mean? What are we returning to? What is the church in all of its fullness? And what is me and my part within this community? As we look back into 2020, we realize, and we already talk about it this year, we say, you know, the before times or before COVID, that we will be doing that for the rest of our lives. This past year will mark the rest of your existence. You will look back and say, that was before or after the pandemic. And many of us, as we now return back to our lives, we're being ourselves fully again, we are carrying questions of who is the person that I'm going to be on the other side of this? Is there a new hairstyle that I'm going to be rocking? Is there a new job or vocation? Is there a a move to a new city? Who am I going to be on the other side of this? And what I want to spend the next 12 weeks doing alongside Ephesians is to ask, who are we going to be on the other side of this? As we recover and rebuild from the past year, what is the big E on the eye chart? What is the North Star guiding us? What is the blueprint of this kind of a community? Over the next 12 weeks, we're setting out to discover just this through our time in the letter to the Ephesians. A letter whose entire message can be summarized, both the gospel and the mission of the church, as collective again. So my hope is that what we may find is as we look to Ephesians, a better understanding of who we are as a community, as a collective, and from that begin to contemplate and then move into who we are individually. And then almost letting that who we are individually then to bring us back into a deeper, more robust application and living into who we are as a collective. And so after 12 months of being but not fully being, we're taking the next 12 weeks to reset, to return to square one, to reconsider and to recommit, to be collective again. So for those of you here, and you have been a part of collective since day one, I am inviting you, let's, let's do not pass go. Maybe you do get to collect $200, but let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the start. And let's ask the questions, who are we going to be on the other side of this? And for those of you that maybe you haven't been here since day one, today is your day one. That Likewise, I wanna invite you to consider what is my understanding of who I am as a Christian or my relationship to the church. And even for some of you that don't identify as a Christian, is maybe, as we'll see today, some of the deepest longings of your heart has been for a collective, for a community to belong to. Ephesians chapter one, verses one and two, and then we'll pray. Where the letter writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, In Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for these letters that not only your spirit uh, guided Paul in writing, but as we looked at last week, this incredible work of bringing it to us today. And so we pray that as we now look at this and reflect on even just this simple little greeting, we would begin to understand Paul's heart for the church and that our heart might look more like his. 
And in doing so, it might look more like yours. Be with us, we pray. Amen. Well, we are looking at just, like I said, big text today, two verses. Literally, the sender and the address of this letter. And so today, what I want to do is take this opportunity to unpack a bit of the story behind the letter to the Ephesians, while also inviting us to see ourselves in that story, right? Simultaneously, that I want to highlight some of these key ideas that Paul lays down here, that in this, like, it's, just, it's a couple of verses, but Paul is laying down the groundwork of everything he's going to develop over the next six chapters in, in, in this, these two verses, Everything comes back to some word that's dropped right here. So we're going we're gonna to look at all this today as we look at how Paul addresses both their and our collective identity. Let's start with our author, the Apostle Paul. Last week, if you've been with us over the time in the Gospel of Mark, we ended the Gospel of Mark last week. Today, here we are in the story. We are jumping about 30 years or so later, where what began in the empty tomb at Easter has now become a movement that has spread around the known world, around the Roman Empire. And much of that explosive growth has been because of this individual, our author, the Apostle Paul. Paul identifies himself as, like I just said, an apostle, as literally a sent one by Jesus to go and to preach the gospel and to plant, to start new churches, these new communities, both for and among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, which is everybody who's not Jewish. And this is insane when you consider that that's what Paul gave his whole life to. That's what we know him for when you compare it to the first half of his life. The man that we know as Paul, formerly known by his Jewish name of Saul or Shaul, was a a Jewish figure. He was, as he identified himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He uh, carried himself with a deep zeal for the law of God and for the Israelite people, for the Jewish people. Not only that, he was a member of the Pharisees, if you remember from our time in Mark. How did the Pharisees get along with Jesus? Not great, right? This is where Paul is growing up. This is what he's within. And and part of that Phariseeism is not only this opposition to this new Jesus movement, it's also grounded in an ethnocentrism directed at our own people group to the uh, exclusion of others. And so that was the first half of Paul's life, but this turning point happens with Paul. This thing that he calls by the will of God or by the decision of God. Paul describes this moment, and some of you have experienced this in your life, where there's this action, this revelation of the living and personal, the wise and powerful God, who in this one moment unveils himself in some unique and powerful way that you had never experienced before. For Paul, this happens on the road to Damascus. While on the way to go arrest Christians, Jesus shows up. And he experiences this revelation, this unveiling of the trueness of reality with Jesus right at its center. And for him, not only just to experience Jesus, but a commissioning to become this apostle to the Gentiles. And so now, the man that for most of his life was known as Shaul, we now know him by his Greek name, Paul, because of his mission. Because of what he gave himself to. And all of this came about, like he said, the will of God, the decision of God. And this is going to be a, like I said, major theme throughout Ephesians, the will of God, the decision of God. More than any other New Testament letter, Paul is going to talk about the will of God, the will of God, the will of God over and over again. He's setting up right here, this little thing. His experience at the road to Damascus, this will, decision moment of God is similarly something that's available to every single one of us and at work within each and every one of us. Really, in in, um, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, it's going to come in just a big, bright light. Now, as we keep moving forward, one of the things just to note, just at the outset, we have gotten one word into Ephesians, and it's Paul. (laughs) And right here is this little reminder in this one word, this man's name, that whoever you are, wherever you come from, nobody's story is a dead end or a cul-de-sac in the experience of the will of God, in the appearance and revelation of Jesus. Just this little moment, Paul, right here, and you go, oh yeah, that's the guy writing this letter. And to all of us, it means that nobody's story is a dead end. But for Paul, this experience of the revelation of Jesus, this led to a life that was not one of sunshine and roses. If you've read through the book of Acts, if you've read through his letters, but one of hardship and difficulty of violence and injustice. Years before he wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus, he was there planting the church. He spent two years, his longest stint in any city was there in Ephesus planting and working within it. You can read about it in Acts 19. 
And this was not just like simple flowing, kind of like walking through the marketplace, kind of people just becoming Christians as he talks to them. It, his ministry ended in a revolt, in a riot that got him kicked out of town. And the riot was over the fact that all these people started coming and following Jesus, and it was leading to uh, um, not only political but economic implications within the city. And so all of the people in power, both politically and within economics, they're, they're losing their mind, and Paul has got to go, and they get a riot that kicks him out. Opposition followed the Apostle Paul's entire ministry. In chapter 3, he tells us that he's writing this letter for prison, but we aren't able to pin that to when because Paul was in prison so many times over his life. He says he's in prison, and we're like, we have no idea which time. Could be in Rome. Could be there's a time that he was in prison in Ephesus, but it doesn't make sense to be writing two Ephesians. So there's, there's literally, we have no idea because he was in prison so many times. And so again, as we, before moving past Paul, it's just worth acknowledging. People don't get imprisoned for simply just sermons about the forgiveness of sins. People don't get imprisoned for bringing and starting little nice communities where everybody just kind of likes each other. And it's, people don't get imprisoned for those sorts of things. What people get imprisoned for is, is these claims that overturn cities. Specifically for Paul, it was that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. In Acts 17, I love it, as he's preaching in one city, another riot breaks out against Paul. And the claims against him are they are saying there is another king than Caesar. So again, just we're setting out here and we're just remembering this story of Paul, that the, the gospel that Paul carried, the gospel that you and I identify with, if you identify as a Christian, is one that brings social, political, economic, and spiritual change. It upsets the status quo of the ways of this world. And when those who are in power, whether that's socially, politically, economically, spiritually, have their status quo upset, it leads to people like Paul getting in prison. It's just this, at the outset of Ephesians, is what we are dealing with here is a document that has been written to communities from an individual that, as I'll say in a moment, that this is not like a sort of Bible Belt Christianity sort of thing of kind of just the church existing alongside culture, and they're doing their thing, we're doing our thing, kind of sequestered off, but one that brings opposition and challenge as they live within their context and the needs of their city, which specifically is the city of, as we saw, Ephesus. Ephesus was the third large, little bit of background history stuff that, you know, you guys know I love. You don't just, there's no notes, there's no quiz at the end, but this is interesting, so... You're going to listen to it. In Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, ancient Ephesus, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, somewhere around 200 to 250,000 people. It was a major port city, so you had all of this trade coming in. And then it was also a hub of all of these um, the tr trade routes that then would move throughout the region. Along with that, it, it be because of that, it became the largest center of trade within all of Asia Minor. I mean, people from all over the world came to Ephesus to live there, to do business there. And as all these people were gathering there, Ephesus became the hub of education, having the third large, largest library in the world at its time, the Library of Celsus. It became the center of entertainment and sports, of acting, and also the gladiator games with the uh, Ephesian theater, the largest in the world at that time. And it was also the center of spirituality and politics in a way that is far more fused within their world and ours than we normally admit with the Artemis Temple. One of the seven wonders of the world was here in Ephesus, the Artemis Temple, this center of worship to the goddess Artemis and along with her, the goddess deity of Rome, Roma, and Caesar. Ephesus was a lot like Los Angeles, a hub of colleges, entertainment, sports, spirituality. Like Los Angeles, you, many of you know this, we are the capital for like the creation of cults. Like you live in the city where, like, it's like every other week there's some new thing that somebody's creating. Like, Ephesus, in a similar way, was, was just not only in its Artemis worship, but all of these different deities and spiritualities that were existing within that. And then similarly, Ephesus is kind of this vision of the political vision of the Roman Empire. And in the same way, as one author put it, that Los Angeles is the, the greatest expression of the American dream, for good or for bad. And so, again, like I just said a moment ago, is this letter, what we're about to get into over the next 12 weeks, this is not a letter written for Bible Belt Christians. And yes, the Bible speaks and is for everyone, but this is for Christians who find themselves within a city that is bustling and loud and alive with culture, both good and bad, and they feel, what in the world does it mean to be the faithful people of Jesus in this kind of, that's what this letter is all about and for. 
Which is why whenever people say like the authors of the Bible couldn't understand or don't speak to our moment, this is just a, a, a humbly saying this, a radical misunderstanding of how similar our time is to ancient, that much has changed and not much has changed. Ephesus is in many ways a lot like L.A. But I want to point out one thing. If you look back in your Bible, with, uh, right after it says who are in Ephesus and then right after the who are faithful, you might see a little footnote there, at least you should. Ryan loves the footnotes. If you come down, it'll say that some manuscripts, and it, and it is the earliest ones, uh, just says, it just goes, saints who are faithful in Christ. It doesn't say in Ephesus. So this letter is just kind of the letter to the who? Later on, this picked up of the work around Ephesus, and, and the whole story behind this, to make it short, is that the letter that we're reading was, in all likelihood, a circular letter. It was not intended solely for one church gathering, but actually meant to be distributed and carried throughout Ephesus, the port city, and then all of the Lycus River Valley that then flows out from the city and all these little church communities that were budding up around there. And so Ephesians, the letter before us, what we're about to set into, is a letter that is made for large gatherings of the whole church and for smaller gatherings to read, to study, to contemplate, and then apply. And so in keeping with Paul's intent here, what this little footnote points us to, is the same is going to be true for us. If we're going to let Ephesians be a document that is for our large gathering and then also down into, you know, the west side, our region, our Lycus River Valley. As we reset and restart our discipleship process and our integrated Bible study is kind of how we refer to it. As we return to being collective again, as we return to our vision based in church's history of being a people of the book, we are inviting, I, in some sense, pleading maybe is too strong a word, but, but we're calling our community back to these rhythms of engaging with the scriptures on a regular basis and to doing this as a community together. And so if you're new to Collective or as a refresher for all of us, at Collective, our discipleship process, our engagement with the scriptures, in this case Ephesians, has three integral parts. The first is personal study, where Sunday before the gathering, we individually read, reflect, and, and pray through this week's passage, that, that passage of whatever it may be from Ephesians or any other book that we're looking at at the time is, you guys, if you're on our social media, it's posted every single week or on the top of our website throughout the week, that this is what we read through at some point before the Sunday gathering. To help restart and reset this process, as we kick off into Ephesians, we have a gift for Collective. Um, we have a, um, how do I call it, a little um, Bible study guide. Um, that we have this, this is going to be available for every one of you that's here uh, to pick up on your way out. For those of you that are, that are um, watching from online, either from your neighborhood dinners this week, we're going to be distributing these through our uh, regional ministry leads. And um, we also have on our resource page on the website, if you're somewhere outside of those two Venn diagrams, um, that you can reach out and we'll, we'll figure out a way to get it to you because we want to get this in the hands of everyone who's a part of community, uh, our, our community. Because what this is, is quite simply, it's just a guided, it's just asking questions through the text and then you fill them in. Very, very simple. This is, this is a tool that we're, we're really wanting to kickstart and get our community reading and rereading the text with each other before the Sunday gathering and then letting discipleship group our discipleship groups, I'll talk more about this process in a second, uh, be the culmination of that. And in my conversations among our church pastorally and how our discipleship process is going, it is this step is the one that we have to address, is personal study. Is, is we have, for, for the most part, and I get it, is, is a, a normal kind of rhythm of attending the Sunday sermon, what we're all doing right now, and then discipleship group just becoming kind of a process through whatever Ryan thought. And as, as, as humbling as that is, you know, that you guys would do that, uh, we want our discipleship groups, we want our discipleship of our church not to be predicated on Ryan, but around the text, right? Or, or whoever else is up here. Like, I don't want that. Like, I'm here to help, but like, you, I'm, I'm not the guy to build your discipleship platform. We want to do this around the scriptures. That's what I'm trying to do is build this around the scriptures. And so personal study is vital to this. Which is why for those of you that are new to reading scripture on a regular basis or like many of us, like I got on the spin bike for the first time in like, if I'm honest, probably decades, but especially, especially post-COVID for the first time in like over a year. And we just, we just know many of our habits that we love were just blown apart by, by the past year. And so we wanted, this is our, 
our, our tool to help. Let's restart this. Let's return back to being a community that's a people of the book. And so this uh, little book is divided into our weeks. Every single like, segment that we're going to go through, each chapter is one of our weeks. Every week has 10 to 12 questions around the text. And so the ways that you can engage with this is either one would be to sit aside 30, 45 minutes a week, sit down, Bible, coffee, you can Instagram it if you want, and then you go through those questions and fill it out. What I'm going to recommend, how I'm going to be engaging with this, is I'm going to be reading the text of the week every single day uh, within the rhythm from uh, after my discipleship group, more on that in a second, to Sunday, and then to the next discipleship group, while I answer one or two or three questions a day instead of doing them all at once. For me, this is motivated out of Psalm 1's kind of invitation to be a person who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night, to meditate, repeatedly bring it over myself. But if you've got one day, you want to do the Saturday with the coffee and the Instagram and the succulents, you go for it. All the power to you. Our personal study then grows and blooms uh, into our Sunday teaching. My, this Sunday teaching is really just, you guys are getting, you know, Ryan's getting paid to do a little bit more of what we're inviting all of us to do on Sunday. And kind of like when the church is gathered in Ephesus, that we build on the foundation of our personal study. My sermons helping provide maybe historical, theological, and, and most hopefully pastoral kind of movement and application on the text so that we may kind of bring what we've been reading for ourselves and maybe see some new things, apply and hear some new truths. And then all of that leads to our discipleship groups. This is in the Lycus Valley throughout the week, kind of like a book club where we discover what we've been seeing within the text, what we've been doing within our book, what we've been seeing within the Sunday teaching. And so my, my, my prayer and my like invitation for the discipleship groups, for those of you that are in them over these next, and I think all of you should, this is again, the reset, deep breath, let's get into it. For everyone that's in a discipleship group, my hope would be that we would all show up with a booklet that is filled out with maybe not even notes from the sermon, if you're that kind of a person, but that we've listened to, we've engaged with the text, and now we're, we're ready. Because we've spent the time, we've prayerfully been considering this and meditating on this, we've got a conversation that's ready to go. And similarly, again, is that we're resetting and we're kind of restarting all this stuff and letting the text guide our discussion. You can just write this out for your discipleship groups, a great way to kind of format discipleship groups. You spend 10 minutes... Opening, check-in, how's everybody doing? 40 minutes, at the beginning you reread the text, and then you get onto the discussion, specifically starting with personal study, then begin to bring in some of the teaching stuff, and then you read the text again around, around minute 40, and then you spend the last 10 minutes praying for one another, specifically what's coming out of the text, what are we seeing here, and then also maybe any pressing needs of sickness or healing or, or, or needs for discernment or whatever's going on within our community. It, it's, it's not super complex, but it's a team sport. Discipleship is a team sport. It is a collective work. It is owned by every single member. I'm going to get on this in a moment. There are no Batman, Lone Ranger Christians. Any saint, any, or maybe we'll get into that in a minute too, any person of, of deep maturity that you know is not someone who has lived out in the wilderness by themselves for decades or tried to do the Jesus thing on their own. It is someone who has learned the rhythms of contemplating, meditating the scripture, worshiping with God's people, and doing life alongside one another. So what that means is you will get out of discipleship group, you will get out of the scriptures, you will get out of collective what you put into it. You will find greater transformation and, and greater discussion within your discipleship groups through the ordinary habit of these three things than, you know, me getting up here and it's like, you know, the Ryan Smith Holy you know, Spirit prophet hour where, like, I literally have, like, I, I, I truly believe that, that there is something profoundly at work when we spend time on the scriptures, when we gather around it, and then when we discuss and call one another to what we're seeing here. And so once again, you will get out of this what you put in. And some of us, we are exhausted right now. And it's because this year has just, it's, it's pulled our attention in a hundred different directions. And there's no shame in the past year. We survived a pandemic, y'all. But now as we come out on the other side, that's right. As we come out on the other side, the invitation for us is, who am I going to be on the other side of this thing? 
Am I going to continue to more or less function within my Zoom meeting, kind of individual, locked in my home thing, even as I'm going about and living within the city? Or am I going to press into a deeper, collective, shared view of what it means to be a person and the people of God? In Ephesus. Look at this. See, we're just, we're just blowing up this whole thing. Okay, let's keep, let's keep looking. Let's look back at the text. We'll keep chewing on this. So notice that Paul writes to those who are in Ephesus, depending on the later or earlier manuscript, right? But notice that he doesn't say the church in Ephesus. He uses three ways to describe the community. And what are they? Saints, faithful, and in Christ Jesus, in Christ. Paul, in these three words, sets up the entirety of what this letter is going to be about. Saints, faithful, and in Christ. Saints, or literally, as it can be translated from the Greek, is just holy ones. Holy being this idea of something being distinct, something being different, something being, the fancy word is, uh, sanctified or set apart. Holiness that is rooted in who God is. He is holy, 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 as the angels say around his throne. And throughout the story of the scripture, it is rooted in who the priests are. They are priests, the holy ones, the ones who mediate the difference and distinction and the set-apartness of God through their very personhood. The temple was the holy place. It was the place that was different, distinct, and set apart from all the rest of the world. And Paul now doesn't talk about a temple or about a priesthood, but about these gathered people in and around the city of Ephesus, that they now are the holy ones. Paul here sets up an identity piece, that holy ones, that saints, is a statement of who we are. It's something he's going to develop and unpack in chapters one through three. Next, he says, to the faithful, that is those who are full of faith. They are full of embodied trust, of loyalty, allegiance as it can be translated to Jesus and to his church. Faithfulness is about both belief and behavior. If saints is about who we are, then faithful is about who or how we are. And he's going to unpack this in chapters four through six. He's saints who we are, faithful, how we are, and finally, in Christ Jesus. That is, we are the community. We are the people who are united to, joined with, living in and belonging to Christ. If saints is about who we are, if faithful is about how we are, then in Christ is about whose we are. And this is not going to be in a selection of chapters. This is what the entirety of this letter is about. Over 11 times in six chapters, more than, I think it's a little more than twice. Man, I did not go to math school. Why do I try to do that in the middle of a sermon? Somewhere uh, just under half. Uh, he, said, he makes some reference to being in Christ, but then that doubles when you talk about his language of with Christ or for Christ. It's, this whole letter is saturated in identity. And here we are only one verse in, and Paul, in three words, sets up everything he's going to develop over the next 12 weeks. Our identity of who we are, the holy ones, the saints of the living God, that we, uh, how we are, that we are faithful, full of this allegiance and loyalty and embodied trust to our God and to his community, and whose we are, that we are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm getting excited, and I don't want to get ahead of Paul. I want to let Paul develop what saints and what faithful and what in Christ mean in their totality in the weeks to come. I don't want to get ahead of him. Today, I just want to step back and spend some time on the nature of our identity. On the nature of our identity. Because for Paul, the answer to those questions of who am I? How am I? That question of how, how do I go out and do Ryan out in the world? And that question of Whose am I? Who do I belong to? Those, the answers to those questions are found and experienced and discovered within us, within the community, within the collective. See, for Paul, all of these are shared realities, not individual ones. Saints, that statement of who we are throughout the letter to the Ephesians, you're going to find that it is a shared and corporate identity. Unlike later traditions of, you know, uh, Mother Teresa or St. Francis, Paul has no frame of reference for an individual holy one, an individual saint. It is always in every single time a collective reality that you either share in that shared reality or you have no part in. There is some sense where, to, in, yeah, well, yeah, it's the collective. 
Your identity as being a holy one is only as true as you are bound up within the community of Jesus' people. Similarly, faithful, as we move into the letter, this question of how we are is always communal. For Paul, faith is always our faith. It is always our shared obedience. Paul has no frame of reference, again, for our kind of lay introduction of this language of talking about our personal relationship with Jesus. For Paul, faith is a collective identity. It is a collective reality. It is one that we share in, contribute to, and even own together. And it is mine as much as it is yours. I, I remember 10 years ago, I did a, uh, like a, a Bible study through Ephesians. It's not the one with N.T. Wright. Because this one had you go through. And right through all of the U's in the letter to the Ephesians, your name. So, you know, it's um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has, you know, blessed Ryan with every spiritual blessing. In him, Ryan has redemption through his blood. And, and the reality is, is that this is a collective letter. Every you that we have in English in this, it's all y'all. It's all second person plural. And the closest thing we have in English to that is, is y'all. The Texans got it right. Maybe for what? No. Uh, the Texans got it right with y'all. And so as we read through Ephesians, you're gonna, it's going to be con- weird for the next 12 weeks. I'm just saying it. You're going to hear me say y'all a lot. When I read the text at the beginning before we pray and we're getting started, I'm going to read y'all into it because that is how it should be translated. Once again, it's, it's, there is no frame of reference for Paul. There is no you within this thing. There is no me apart from we. There is no in Christ that is not de- desperately built up within the church. And so that's why that third identity piece of in Christ, the question of whose we are, every in Christ in Ephesians is a communal reality. The language of in Christ is to be in his, it's the language he gives is this body with Jesus being the head. And in the same way that a finger itself cut off from the rest of the body is not only just not a finger, it's not a body. That to be in Christ is to be contributing and living within and flowing from and growing out of the shared collective identity that we have. So in this greeting, in this first verse, Paul lays the foundation for our collective identity. Who we are, how we are, whose we are. And it is all shared, participated, contributed to, and even owned by one another. Like I said, there's no me apart from we. Every you is a y'all. And here's the thing, because that's what's going on within this text, if we miss collective identity here, if we move into this letter without getting this, we will misread the entirety of Ephesians. We'll be going through putting in Ryan's name, or maybe you won't be putting in Ryan's name. That'd be kind of (laughs) weird. We'll be going through putting in our names. The whole time missing the fundamental purpose of this letter is a collective letter. And if, if we misread the entirety of Ephesians, we'll miss out on what it means to be the church. And, and this is the thing that's so scary to me. This is the thing that has kept me up at night for weeks now in preparing for this is we are so prone to misread this. As a people who have been so fundamentally shaped by individualism, This worldview of individualism where identity, those questions of who I am, how I am, and whose I am are chosen, dictated, and governed by the individual self, by what we may call the almighty me. And we are not just living and shaped and formed within an individualistic culture, but one that is radically so. Back in the uh, 1990, you can imagine how much it's changed in 30 years, sociologists put together a cultural spectrum all the way from collectivist societies to individualist societies. 53 nations through all of these tests and studies, and they pinned out where all of these different nations were on that range. USA... You can, you can factor, yeah, probably was leading the way within individualism, of course, but not just leading the way. We were double the median. You had this collection and, you know, maybe a couple little individualism, and then if you look at it, it's, we're out here in America land, just like, woo, all about me, baby. That is the culture that we've grown up and we are within, shaped by this individualism. And again, if Los Angeles is the fullest expression of the American vision, then we live in, are being shaped and formed by a spectrum-shattering vision that is built around the individual self. 
where the greatest good is about self-actualization, of self-gratification, of self-reliance and self-care. And Aziz Ansari's character in Parks and Recreation of Treat Yourself or in Princess Elsa, the greatest good is to show yourself, to find and pursue your truth, the claim and call to be yourself, who you are, how you are, and whose you are. That's what you go and figure out within yourself and find. In that sort of a culture where that's the greatest good, the greatest evil then becomes any person, any community, any relationship, any institution, any tradition, any responsibility, which counters and challenges the almighty me. My choices over who I am, how I am, and whose I am. And then what this leads to is a society and communities and relationships and marriages without responsibility and without community. Because the relationships are contingent on me and my desires and my needs and my truth. And so the moment that the needs or the truth or the vision or the calling of the community or the relationship or the marriage hits the point where it's just not meeting what I want. The relationship, the community, the institution, the tradition is denounced, it's departed from, and even destroyed. This is the age that we're living within. And that this brings then ramifications on huge levels of society. It's destroying our world and our city. Specifically, as we look at COVID-19 this past year, just as, as exclusively as right there, COVID-19 and like what happened with America and our spread that was so much more like all over the place. And, and specifically that it was happening not just in, in uh, there wasn't a, a political pin that you could put it on where spreads were happening. It seemed to be vindicated by something else. Sociologists found that the greatest spread, regardless of political affiliation or political views around the pandemic, that the greatest spread was found within those cities that had the greatest representation of individualism within that cultural system. Why? Because individualism is a system and a way of thinking that my desires, my truth, and my needs exceeds that of the communities. So I don't care if there's a pandemic going on. I am young and healthy. And it's not just with pandemics, but studies have shown that the highest rates of, this blew my mind, depression, alcoholism, suicide, homicide, juvenile delinquency, divorce, abortion, abuse, and racism, highest rates of all of those are found within individualist cultures. Now, I'm not here to say the answer is collectivist in collectivism. Marx and Lenin totally took that, and, and it can be just as bad. What I'm calling us to is a collectivism that is built up and based around the personal work of Jesus. But I want to point out something, that on that notice of that last thing of racism being found within the highest views, there's a whole conversation right now, as we're having conversations around race and injustice within our world, and, and on one level there's this discussion of as we're beginning to see the way that sin and injustice impact systems and structures within our world, that we begin to... to look through and see the ways that racism has shown up at these varying different levels and qualities. To be able to, there's a lot of good work in being able to do that. One of the things that I'm becoming increasingly convicted and convinced of is, and, and, I, and, and you know, we can have a conversation of which came first, the chicken you know, or the egg on this. I, my, my conviction is that underneath all of that is a systemic individualism. For every conversation about systemic sexism and systemic racism, at some level is systemic individualism. And that this is the this sort of thing that's underneath and working within it all. And so I, and, and this, take this for what it is. I think I, this is me and I, I feel like somebody took the curtain off of the stage this week. That we've been looking at all of these issues within our world on, in the news feed, and, and it just felt like in seeing this this week that somebody pulled back the curtain and individualism was there waving. The one who's been working behind all of this. This system structure which places the almighty me over and against the community. And so I, conversations about justice won't happen, about COVID won't happen, about violence and shootings because it's predicated on me and, and a lack of empathy and sympathy. And great. I, This is systemic individualism is the thing that is working within it all. And the church 
is not immune. Just like it's not immune to any other systemic cultural influence that we've got to see and disciple out, we are not immune to systemic individualism. It has infected our mission and our message. Our message within systemic individualism has become one where we dress up Jesus into a priest to the almighty me, where evangelicalism offers you varying franchises of churches, build a Jesus workshops, where you can go and find the Jesus that will appeal and fit within the who I am, how I am, and whose I am that most appeals to me. Where we can stand with a Jesus and say, look, he looks just like me. He votes like me. He thinks like me. He listens to the music that I listen to. He li- We've made this message that this is what has happened. And so over this past year, I'm telling you, what, what I have seen and experienced within our church and with talking with friends that are pastors in other churches is around these, the, the departures that have happened within churches, people leaving the church. And this is not a collective, this is, this is, this is a pandemic reality that everyone has experienced. But in every single person that I've talked to, the departures have been around how the church is handling COVID or, or, or the conversations around racial justice or justice in general. And every single person that I've talked to is that most often what it boils down to when people leave on those sorts of terms is some sort of claim that is around this declaration that that's not my Jesus. Whether that is a, a overly conservative or an overly you know, liberal view of how do we deal with the pandemic not asking how the pastors are being led by wisdom or by the scriptures and by prayer, but, but a, that's not similarly with the conversations around justice. That as we begin to go where the scriptures go and where the Bible goes, where Jesus goes, that people stand and then leave from the community because that's not my Jesus. Very rarely are we appealing to actually the text. We'll have conversations about opinion and sociology, but nobody on a very rare basis do I, in those conversations was there actually a, what the text says, what Jesus says. Why? Because we have been so formed to understand Jesus as being reflective of me. We have allowed churches to be build the Jesus workshops, even as we all sit and hold our own little version of Jesus. And then what happens within that system is the mission of the church then no longer becomes an embodied community of righteousness and justice out into the world, but one that provides a service, a product, or a subscription, like HelloFresh, where we show up to you on a weekly basis with everything that you want perfectly suited for you. Whether that's an event with transcendent worship, an experience of like an okay sermon, or even the community itself. All of those, though, without personal responsibility and without accountability. Because at the end of the day, this experience, my engagement, my serving, my part of the community is there in and as much as it serves and meets my needs, my desires, my truth. And so once again, I've seen over this past year the effects of systemic individualism around hard conversations that I've had and and just difficult pastoral, where do we go from here? Around serving, around giving, around discipleship groups, around church discipline cases, around every single hard conversation that I've had at some level. Systemic individualism, which is rooted in the love of self, which in many ways we can get down to a distrust of God and a dislove of God and a dislove of others. At some level, weaved within that process. So to put it bluntly, as if this hasn't been enough, if we do not disciple systemic individualism out of our community, not only will we be unable to read Ephesians, we will not get the church and the scary weight before me. I believe with everything in me that Jesus' church, will that hell, the gates of hell cannot prevail. Local churches are not promised that. If we on the west side do not get this, then I, I, I am uncertain about the future. And I don't mean this to scare, there's not like we're back here like, we don't have any money in the bank, so Ryan, go out there and like, yeah. I, this, is, this is unrelated to where we are, me looking into the future and prayerfully considering where we're going is we have to see this. Because systemic individualism, like it's either big brother or little brother racism, is not always explicit. It shows up in little ways that you didn't know were there until somebody points it out. And so some of you right now, maybe you, you feel like I'm talking about you. I, this is, I, have, I genuinely don't have anybody's face that I'm thinking of right now. This is for our community. 
there are some of us that are more adapted and more leaning into this than others that we've got work to do. And there are some of us that there are these nuanced ways that we are some of the most dedicated, like serving and giving people in the church. And yet individualism is behind it, the almighty me. It is a tool to serve myself that I'm not actually here for the community. I'm using the community for myself. It's for... This is, I'm not kidding. This is is what Ephesians is going to invite us into, is the truth of what it means to share this collective identity, to be collective again. This is not my rant against a collect few. This is my invitation and my plea with every single one of us. Because I believe in preparing for this series, what our world, what our city desperately needs is a community that is built on an Ephesians sort of collective identity. That in a city that bows to the almighty me, that our greatest marker of holiness, of being distinct and set apart and different and sainthood is the fact that we live so collective in our identity that it is completely different than our city. It is a holiness where it feels like you're walking into a different space, a different community than what your work is like or your other friendships are like. That when you're here, your family, what is that, Applebee's? Who is that? Olive Garden. How did I forget? Breadsticks, man. So our collective identity is who we are. It's not just that who we are is our collective identity. It's that our collective identity is that they feed one another. It's not just that we share in our holiness. It's that as we share in our holiness, it's what marks us as holy. Similarly, that our our faithfulness of how we are is measured not by your Bible reading plan, as important as that is, but in your faithfulness to Jesus and his church. For far too long, we've talked about faithfulness in the lens of personal piety, and Ephesians is going to call you back to, but what are you doing for your neighbor? This is the sort of community our city needs. uh, People who are faithfully putting the needs of others before their own. And if we can't do that for this family, what makes you think you're going to be able to do that for your neighbor? And finally, our collective identity. Going back to the reality of whose we are. You see, it's not just that being in Christ, we have this collective identity. It's that being in Christ, then, is what is that shared identity all about? That as we live within a collective, a shared way of being, where we, uh, there's no me without we, that there is a sense where we mark ourselves as people who belong to the King Jesus, who unlike any other religious system, any other political king, any other whatever system you've got, did not call for the community and for his people to sacrifice themselves for him, but he laid down his life for them. What kind of a community does that lead to? And so here we are as we are at post-2020, moving into the you know, part B of the rest of our lives in many ways. Who are you going to be on the other side? Who are we going to be? Ephesians is inviting you to find your identity in our identity, to understand that there is no me with we, and at the same time that there is no me, there's no we without me, without you. As a collective, that it's not just that you're connecting yourself to some bigger thing, it's that, that, that you are vital to this thing actually even happening. And so I want to invite all of us to this, whether it's day one or you've been here since day one, this sort of a vision but I want to take a moment before we kind of close, begin to close up. Uh, I, I just want to address some of those of you that have been here <laughs> longer than me. You've been here since day one, or you've been here for, for quite some time. You've been here longer than me. And, and, and the reality of where Collective is now and the stories I hear about who Collective has been, it, it brought me to reflecting on the fact that the letter to the Ephesians is not the only message to the church in Ephesus in Scripture. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, not Paul, but Jesus himself, sends a message to the church in Ephesus. He says this, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and do the works you did at first. I haven't been here from the beginning, but I know the stories from then. Many of you have faithfully endured patiently over the years and all that collective's gone through. You have bared up Christ's name diligently. You have not grown weary. You're still here, whether here or watching. But in my conversations with some of you and just my pastoral pulse after being here for a year and a half or whatever, at some point for many of you, there's this feeling that I have that you lost that initial love. That motivating concern that brought you to be a part of Collective. For some of you coming out of Reality Church here in LA when we first planted, that there was this, this compulsive desire for the vision of Collective. And now that we've settled right around post-COVID, year five and six, that there's been a cruise control that you've found. And now what I'm not calling to is for any of us to, to we all got to pump on you know, the gas and we're going to be living dangerously and wild or anything like that. What I'm inviting us to is just to contemplate and consider. Have I abandoned the love that I had at first? And you may not even be here since day one, but you've been a part of the church and you're just tired of the whole church thing, but for whatever reason, you're still a part of it. The invitation of Jesus at the end of Revelation is remember from where you have fallen. Remember what that was like. That that is not in the rearview mirror. That is available to us, but only in as much as we all commit to it. And my prayer for this series and for post-2020 is that we, me with you, may hear Jesus' call to be collective again. And so in his closing words, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul closes his meeting, his greeting, he reminds us, Collective identity is not for the sake of collective identity, and it's not even for our own sake, but it's for the experience of the grace and peace of God. It is in our collective identity that grace and peace are experienced. Grace being the experience of God's favor and blessing. Peace, the experience of God's wholeness and peace and shalom within our community. That comes to us and is given to us within our collective identity as being the children of God, our Father, and the citizens of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. My prayer is for great movement of grace and peace within our community. And I believe Ephesians is up to the task if we are. And my my deep prayer is that we might see an invitation out of a culture of the almighty me and individualism and to begin to contemplate and consider what does it mean to be collective again.